This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is Willie Wisely, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. Songwriter Willie Wisely teleports casually across musical boundaries with occasional forays into the sweet spot of melodic pop. Let's listen. To hear a Willie Wisely musical composition, press 3. Some call her quiet, others call her just plain weird. We hooked up in England days before she disappeared. Willie Wisely, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Oh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here, so thanks. Oh, gosh. Uh, thank you for having me. I was really, I enjoyed the episode with Mark Bacino uh, entirely, and, and he's a dear friend. And and when I saw him, I'm like, I got to do that, too. <laughs> Dave's legit. <laughs> he's a good guy. Uh, and he speaks volumes about you. What do you think the chances are that your parents were sitting around listening to Hank Williams uh, or watching a Gene Autry movie when they named you William John Wisely Jr. What do you think? <laughs> you think that sounds like a, a country name? Is that the insinuation? Kind of. Oh, that's funny. But, you know, when you shorten it to Willie Wisely, yes. you know, how could you be anything but a songwriter? I mean, it's got alliteration, it's got rhyme. You're kind of doomed, you know? <laughs> Well, funny story. Yeah. No, I get the country and Western uh, reference because um, uh, mostly just because my parents were big country outlaws fans of Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, you know, and uh, my first concert I ever went to was Waylon and the crickets opened up and Joe Ely opened up. And I I remember that so distinctly. But um, yes, they did raise me on country and Western, but I would say that our family wasn't a particularly country and Western family. We're a Midwestern. And, um, but but I'll tell you, I was I was Billy growing up, and I was Bill in high school and junior high. And yeah, and when I turned 15, 16, I'm like, well, if I'm going to live my life on stage, I think I need to be Willie Wisely. The problem was, 
one of my best friend's name was Willie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really awkward to steal your friend's <laughs> name <laughs> yep. and say, you have to call me your name now. <laughs> so, but that kind of happened. So. <laughs> <laughs> a long time how young were you when you started writing before anybody else knew about it um i started writing the minute i picked up a guitar because it was um i was so i picked up the guitar out of out of awe for the beatles and you know i just i I made a lot of assumptions that that one like i couldn't figure out their songs because i would forever want to be a fan i don't even want to know how they're built i just want to I'll reverse engineer them myself. I just, I don't want to know. It'll, it'll ruin everything. And, um, you know, so I just, I picked up the guitar and immediately started putting chords together. And then a few weeks later, I had my first guitar lesson that I signed up for. And I went in and the guy said, well, what, what level are you at? What do you got for me? And I'm like, well, I put together these chords and I'm like, you know, she ain't going nowhere. Ooh, ooh, you know, and I just had this dumb little song. And he's like, that's really good we aren't going to give you guitar (laughs) lessons. We're going to give you songwriting lessons. And so it was Jack McNally, uh, the founder of McNally Smith college of music, which is now sadly defunct in Minneapolis. But, uh, Jack McNally was pivotal, like one guitar lesson in October of 1980 changed my whole life. It's crazy. All right. So you were saying that you went in for music lessons and they decided after hearing you play, that you might be better off with songwriting lessons instead. So what do you remember about that? When this guitar teacher who has ostensibly, you know, you know, dozens and dozens of students at this huge music school in Minnesota, when, when he immediately in the first, you know, 10 minutes of my first lesson ever says, Oh, you know, we're putting you in the special track. I mean, it was, you know, it was a point (laughs) of pride. I didn't know I was doing anything worthy of, you know, or being different, you know, Mm -hmm. And and so it played to that part of me. And I I remember that he just said, you strung together some nice chords um, and they make sense. I, I don't think he said anything else. And he's like, keep doing that. Come back next week with something new written. And um, I remember I came back, if not that next week, the following week with um, a song called From My Love. Um, and and it was uh, very um, you know moon moon and June and stuff like that. But it, it's uh, it, it it still had some oddities. You know, I still took it to some weird places that sort of made sense to me. But now I realize like a lot of my songs have this. I go to this. I'll, I'll make a move that isn't completely customary. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it's funny to have that also as part of my makeup in a corporate environment in my day job for people go, you know, people will often say like, uh, wouldn't have gone there, but <laughs> you did, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question about songwriting, but he tasked me out to uh, TASK tasked me out to, to keep going. And what a beautiful thing. That's awesome. He had you embrace your individuality at an age where, individuality is usually not considered good between kids. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, he's in there teaching Freebird to the umpteenth student today, you know, <laughs> and trust me that that was, that was the era of Freebird. you know, in 1979, you're taking a guitar lesson. Guess what you're going to learn? You know, I mean, if <laughs> I leave here, you know, um, but uh, 
you know, he probably also saw that, oh, he can sing. He can sing while he plays. You know, for most people, that's like a, a stumbling block, you know. So he was probably just like, okay, let's push this kid over, over this direction. have way too much strong material for us to cover it all in an hour and i mean that and uh so i'm going to call out a few songs that caught my ear and uh, see what kind of conversation we can spark about songwriting um we're going to possibly skip an album or two but we're going to cover a lot of songs um your newest album is face the sun sutures loose is the first song on the album you've got a get back kind of a drum style on it you know like get back from the beatles and it's really cool um would you like to tell us anything about it Yes, Sutures Loose is um, a song that I wrote maybe more quickly than any other song um, in my entire canon. And um, it just came out of me one day. I was not in a place of particular inspiration. It was just in my recording studio. I had just heard um, Ryan Adams for the first time mm-hmm. and was really impressed. What was what was the song early, maybe off his first album, you know, all young, we are young or something. I can't remember what it was, but I was just blown away at how offhanded it was. And it just made me feel so uptight, like, good God, there's music flowing out of him. I know there's music flowing out of me. There is no reason why I have to spend two months writing a song. Uh, And, and, and so I just almost out of an anger, sort of a third anger, third jealousy, you know, the third, third inspiration, you know, and, and third perspiration, 133%. <laughs> I just wrote a song very quickly and, um, and that just came out and I wanted to, I thought the thing I, I had just been married, uh, I think the year or two beforehand. And I was just, I've always been particularly grateful for having my wife in my life. And I just wanted to write something about how cool she is and how, she's just okay with with the messiness of life and actually getting messy and actually getting dirty and she's a veterinarian and she loves surgery and blood and and she comes back to the dinner table and she's talking all about it and and I'm like please I'm trying to eat you know <laughs> but but there's part of her that is the boy in our marriage and in many ways I'm maybe the more conventional like you know uh, prim and proper one that might be associated more with the female identity. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, glittering generalities, so I apologize to everyone who might be offended by that. And, but anyway, it's it's a trope, and I acknowledge it. And uh, so I just admire her for leading in the way that she does. And I wanted to write a song that said to the world, "My girl is messy. She doesn't need perfume. She doesn't need to look good. She doesn't need to pose or." powder lips for anybody she barely needs to wear makeup she's more attractive without it and um and we we keep our and she keeps her life loose i mean and and because you know we had uh, our first child and um within 48 hours i was off to japan uh, uh on a tour um after the birth of my first of ella my baby girl and and so looseness and being able to stick and move and staying flexible is just in the DNA of our relationship. And I so deeply appreciate that. So it's just a, a song that's that honors her. Well, the title um, threw me for a loop because even after hearing the whole thing, I wasn't absolutely positive that I knew what you meant. And of course, that's part of the fun of music is the listener puts their own spin on things and, and it isn't always meant to be completely explained and that's great. But when you tell me, tell me she's a vet, that, that is another layer to it. But I was actually thinking, you know, even keeping your laces loose on your shoes and the whole bit, but I like your explanation a lot. 
Yeah, I realize it it sort of insinuates a scar um, is healing or something is healing or some damage has been done. But uh, that's life. I'm going to kind of be predictable here, but the second song, I think you have a lot of great songs on the album, but Cut Your Groove. Um, you had me at acquiesce. <laughs> <laughs> Keep. I didn't talk tough to hear myself speak I said what I feel was real And that's all So don't be fighting when you yes When they plant a bomb in your old dress Searching for a fuse we can use To blow my eyes I'm gonna cut Now, previously, you recorded this song with a group called The Conquerors, mm -hmm. I believe in 2000, yeah. if that's correct, yeah. and on the Sick of Living EP, and you recorded more than one album with that band, correct? Yeah, uh, three EPs, and well, four EPs, basically, yeah. EPs, yeah. Uh, the cover photo on that EP, I'm going to take a little journey here, but uh, it's available on Bandcamp. The cover photo is super cool. It's got the four band members standing in front of, is that Big Ben? <laughs> it's, it's, a, uh, it's the government building, municipal building in Minneapolis that looks a lot like Big Ben. Yeah, I got the impression it wasn't exactly Big Ben, but it's supposed to look like it. But you have this spectacular Paul Weller scowl on your face, and you're wearing a deep yellow turtleneck with a patterned front. And that makes may sound like I'm picking on you, but I'm, it's actually a styling shirt. And... Um, <laughs> On a more serious note, leading up to my, my Terry Gross question here, was the Conquerors part of your listen to the flower people spinal tap period or your Dukes of the Stratosphere XTC period or was it something else entirely? Oh, funny. Great, great references, uh, both of which I deeply appreciate. Um, <laughs> the, con the Conquerors, um, again, most of my music inspiration comes out of awe and I had when when my Willie Wisely trio, which was sort of a actually a jazzy sort of Ray Charles R and B ish kind of thing that came out in the late eighties uh, and and sort of you know, and released our first full length in ninety two. Um, one of the fellow bands on on the Minneapolis scene was the Fun Seekers, and I just loved Keith Patterson. He was this true. He's just such a brilliant weirdo, and he is a encyclopedic on the music of, of well, many eras, but in particular that mid '60s era. And I just fell in love with his aesthetic and his dress and his um, and the music of the Fun Seekers. And I always wanted to collaborate with him, if for no other reason than he was this wild bass player. Like his bass playing was a, a motorcycle ride on down Mulholland. Boulevard. It was just, I'm gonna die. You know, I mean, like, we can go up and 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 it's 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 everything bass playing shouldn't be. It's like a thousand notes, you know, and and it's just full of melodies, and and I just loved it. And I just, I to this day, he's brilliant. And I said we should do a band together. And um, he looked at me with great incredulity because I'm some sort of long-haired hippie freak in a sharkskin suit, pretending I'm playing. You know, I'm I'm playing like punk rock jazz and i you know <laughs> i don't know but i think he he took my fanhood in earnest and we decided to put something together and he brought in adam fessenmeyer who's an amazing guitarist he's like you know uh i'm trying to think of, of uh, you know uh, albert lee what was he in 10 years after yeah uh, uh check that name he, you know the guy in 10 years after 
you know, that sort of 60s guitar is just the greatest tone and can boogie and can shake and can swing and can and just do all this stuff. And then he brought in Bonnie Gregg, our drummer, who was just the most stripped down Ringo kind of guy. And then Keith dictated this sort of we're only going to play music from this two year period that comes from the continent, not even necessarily from England. You know, and we have to, you know, all these Dutch bands with names I can't pronounce and we're going to be so obscure. And I'm like, can't we just cover a zombie song? You know, like, no, um, you know, <laughs> they're not obscure enough. And I, so I just got myself down this wormhole with Keith and it was a beautiful wormhole. And, uh, and we toured a bit and made a whole bunch of records. And all of those recordings are made on uh, four track cassette decks. And I take I take credit for doing the engineering on that. I, I can, I'm really good with a four track cassette deck. I had a four-track cassette, and mine sound like crap. So, good, <laughs> good on you. If you look at this version, um, the Conqueror's version of Cut Your Groove, and your version on the new album, uh, tell a little bit about how they're different and why you re-recorded it and what you did differently. I love the little low-voiced uh, thing that comes in. Was it, does he do the title? Cut Your Groove. <laughs> Often back then, he was just hated his voice, and I sometimes think he would just snowplow through everything, just trying to yell. And and uh, he's got a fine voice, you know, or even a great voice. But anyway, yeah, no, he he uh, added those background vocals, which I thought were brilliant. Um, I didn't even want to try to recreate those um, on the new record. Um, I'd recently become starstruck with um, the Corner Laughers who are a band out of a popsters yep. uh, out of the Bay area. And I'm like, you guys, I need your textures on, on, uh, on my record. So they sing backups on mine and we rewrote the parts um, to be more corner laughers. Like um, the new, the, the I, uh, for, for the uh, Congo's version, I always thought after, just after the record came out, I was like, ah, it's too slow. You know, we cut <sighs> it too slow. And, and, and I think that's kind of why um, we put a live version uh, on that last on that album, uh, on that EP of The Conquerors, to just show that, like, no, this is a barn burner, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But, of course, it's really low. Cut your groove slow or fast. We can cut it any way you need it. <laughs> Funny. We're expert groove cutters. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I, but, so I just had this idea, like... Um, I want to cut this with different people and see how it floats. I don't, to me, this is not necessarily a vintage song, even though it was completely inspired by out of our heads, uh, Rolling Stones era. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think if anyone cares to listen, it's, it's a reverse engineering of, uh, baby, 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 you're out of time. I said, baby, you know, that great Rolling Stones song that, that, uh, other people had hits with it even beyond them. So um, it's kind of a fun AB if you want to do that. I, I, I didn't know the chords. Again, I didn't know the chords to uh, Baby, You're Out of Time. And I didn't even know what key it was in. But standing over the kitchen sink doing dishes, I'm going to rewrite it. So that's how that happened. Well, another song I want to call out um, is Better Not to Care because it is an Al Green party. I mean, from start to finish, the organ, the, it's just gorgeous and fun. And uh, you're, you're clearly having a good time singing like, like Al Green.
Yes. Um, that song was written with Shelley Pikin, who is a master. Um, and she, uh, like me, lived in Laurel Canyon, lives in Laurel Canyon. And um, we, I recently moved, but um, she was a neighbor. And she had written the big hit from the 90s called Bitch. Um, and I cannot remember the woman. Meredith Brooks. Meredith, yeah. Yeah. And that was only one of Shelley's hits. So she's a hit you know like made to tailor songwriter like a real pro um she became a friend i went over to her house and her flow her lyric flow is unbelievable and she's got a good voice and she can just sing and go and hey i love nothing more than putting chords together and just keep finding the surprising collision of of wonderments and you know and and uh and, and uh, you know, really delving into that. So she wrote most of the lyrics, but I mean, she would certainly ping me for input because her stated goal here was, Willie, we are here to write you a song, a song that you're going to be proud to sing, a song that's going to mean something to you and find your truth. And I'm like, whoa, I have never been in a writing session where someone started on that premise. That was that blew me away. She's a giver. Yeah, she's a giver, and she's also just a pro. Like, if if she sits down to write with, uh, um, oh, I don't know, I'm completely making this up. You know, Billy Idol. <laughs> you know, she's not going to write a Shelley Piken song for Billy Idol. She's she's like, Billy, what's your next album going to be? Anyway, she, you know, she just started from that very unselfish place, uh, that giving place. And I'm like, great. And she's like, well, how about, you know, caring? And we just built something out of that. And I just kept playing chords, looping them, building new sections. She kept singing and I'd suggest some phrasing and I'd suggest a lyric turn. And she'd say, no, 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 no. But how about this? And, and um, so she was just a really amazing partner. And in fact, I, I kept throwing in new chord ideas. And at one point in the session, she's like, just keep playing that one. You know, so like I frustrated her. It's like, because I'm throwing too much out. And um, that, that was, I actually remember her getting, you know, like, you know, like a little heated with me, um, which is just flattery when a pro just knows what they want and you're in the room with them. Is that as a, a background singer uh, also on that song? Yes, yes. Cece Benhoff. And she is just a doll. And I am completely smitten with her voice. And her muse, um, she's just got one of these incredible vibes that that is like no other. So I go to her shows, and I'm just a huge fan, and I'm so grateful that she uh, graced the record with her with her ostinato to me, uh, to my lead vocal, and even took the lead vocal a, a little bit away from me. And, and uh, I just love that. Yeah, we. I definitely wanted to go for Al Green because I was thinking I want this funky, but without some sort of, uh, you know, I don't want anything that's going to overpower the intimate sentiment of the, the the truthiness of the of the song and the confessionality of it. So I just thought, wow, well, of course, that's just Al Green. You know, that's just right right there. And I had covered in the early '90s. I'd covered uh, "Let's Stay Together," so I, I knew well about the Al Green slink you know, and, and how much audiences just love that. So uh, we, we recorded it in that style. And you mentioned how much fun I'm having singing it. Unfortunately, I had recorded the basic tracks uh, in, the, in a key that was pretty high. And it forced me to really sing at the top of my range. Um, and so that's something that would be like, you know, don't ask Paul McCartney to sing Oh Darlin' every night. That's probably not mm -hmm. going to happen, you know. Right. <laughs> Somehow he does Helter Skelter, but it's just, uh, um, yeah, I'd, reproducing that live is tough. So I have this acoustic solo version of it that has really great James Taylor style guitar, acoustic guitar. So I think I'll, I'll roll out that version in a, in a lower key. Can't wait to hear it. is all I need It should come naturally I'm lost if I'm awake I toss this way and that Stare at where you slept 
and think of bittersweet. I can't sleep. I sense that you have a healthy disregard for conventional music business marketing based on the way you mix your music styles. Because on the new record, Face the Sun, uh, a few of the songs get the full-on country and western treatment, which is what I call steel guitar, and uh, and even the basso profundo uh, vocal on I Can't Sleep. Um, you've got steel guitar on No Surprise and Fall Inside Your Eyes. Now, when I hear steel, steel guitar, I immediately think country. But still... Face the Sun isn't what I would consider a country album, and you're not really a country artist. I mean, you went ahead and put three songs on that are pretty full-on country, and yet you're not a country country singer. I, I mean, that's, is that a disregard, or is that a, I'm just going to play whatever I want to play? I've always been out of control of my muse. I, I, uh, I don't write to assignment real well, and um, I'm in the moment as a human being. I live in the moment and find it hard to plan. I really enjoy acting now and thinking later. And I trust that. So that's part of what's going on there. The other part of what's going on there is I just love Neil Young. And, you know, uh, he's, you know, his Harvest record left a, a deep impact on me, as as did Waylon and Willie and Jesse Coulter and Topple Glaser. There, those were the outlaws. And, um, yeah, so it's it's in me. And when I met pedal steel players, that we a, a lot of a lot of it is is about finding your instrument. You know, is about finding your voice. And then in the case of this album that was grown over a long period of time, the voice kept being the pedal steel. And I didn't realize that there were pedal steel on over half the record until it was done. I honestly didn't um, no hyperbole. So I just was following the muse. Well, there's no obviously no criticism there. I mean, Elton John, who is a straight-on pop star, did a lot of country music, and a lot of his country songs are very, very country, you know. Mm -hmm. but, and he does them well. Uh, during the record label era, record companies tended to pressure artists to curb their versatility, you know. And uh, the idea was that a defined genre is easier to market, you know. But you have the freedom to record music that that can be anything it wants to be. But as a songwriter, um, do you feel any need to balance? your freedom with whatever your audience expectations might be? And what do you think they are? God, that's a good question. Um, what are my audience's expectations? My, my audience is small enough. <laughs> the, the sample set is so small. I may not have a, have an answer for you. <laughs> no. Um, hey, I, I, I feel grateful for the audience that I have. And it's more than most artists can hope for in their lives. And I'm, simultaneously grateful and proud of, of it do they tell you what they want no no one ever does and sometimes i feel like i don't know if you were able to spend time with my facebook feed but you know i mentioned i, I you know feel like i was born for the stage and when i get up there and make music in front of people i i i've been told that you know the room light lights up and I, and the, the vehicle for doing that is these songs that I write. And, and I didn't, I never wanted to play covers and I never wanted to, and I couldn't ever get serious about acting. So I was just, I almost have no choice. You just have to write your own material. You idolize the Beatles. You, you have to write your own material. That's, that's their formula. You know, you have no choice. And uh, I don't, I don't idolize Tom Jones like I do with the Beatles, you know, cause Tom isn't a writer. Yep. So um, I have no choice. So I just get up on stage and I do what I want. But, you know, I, so and, and a lot of it is about being on stage and being in the moment. And the songs are sort of like a, the secondary, like, oh, shit, I got to write a song. 
to, to do what I love to do. Um, and so consequently, I think people drawing this back to your question, I feel like sometimes my audience almost doesn't care what I do musically. They just want to hear, you know, my specific vocal tone and my specific humor or my specific view on love and life. And that's all that matters. And I've, I've had this thought more recently that, 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 um, I, I should really just go out there and unapologetically do anything that I feel, uh, that I want to do. Um, there's no rules. And the more rules I break, the larger the audience will be. So it's not about the content of what I do. It's more about the form, which is ironic because now I'm on a songwriting uh, podcast with, with Dave Caruso yourself and <laughs> the songs are the content. And so, you know, we should be giving that first seat in the, in, in the bus, but, uh, in, instead I'm sort of, uh, minimizing it and saying, gosh, I, you know, sometimes I think that the simple three chord songs are the ones that work best live and all the sophisticated numbers with all the passing tones and diminished and augmented are the ones that sort of, you know, slow down the show and are only for those who uh, like enjoy music for cerebral reasons. Well, we all know that McCartney couldn't read music and um, you don't have to know anything about theory to write a song and and those aren't those songs aren't worse or better uh it's the ones that reach people and you're obviously reaching people and i've heard the same thing about your shows that uh, you can hear a pin drop and they'll follow you wherever you go <laughs> it's really cool i mean it's your attitude and it's your um being in the moment as you said you have a good sense of humor it's all in there oh thank you I just wanted to say that uh, when I was listening to Parador, your album from 2006, there's just so many good songs on this album. Um, and you had it produced with uh, Linus of Hollywood or Linus Dotson. Yes. Uh, must have been great, mm -hmm. a great experience. It's very poppy, very fun. Yes. That album is uh, many people's arrival point to, to my oeuvre. And, and it's, it's interesting because to me, that is my most polished album um and um linus is was a very exacting producer um he wanted things you know in order and tight uh, he wanted me in tune and on time and and it it really shows because uh, it's just a very i don't have i'm gonna repeat the word polished you know uh, affair mm -hmm. and also it had been nine years since my previous album so i had a lot of good songs stored up as well that dirty old t-shirt never looked better and hung on the frame of my beautiful heather she's young and i'm stung through all of the pain and all my denial the arguments lasted for miles and miles we went deep I had, you know, done film scores and, and, uh, you know, the, I can't remember like a live album or something. And the, there's other things that occurred in that time period, but I wasn't concentrating on my artist career. So once we got around to making Parador, it was like, Ooh, uh, we have an embarrassment of wealth in terms of great songs. And I just think that that album, uh, you know, shows that it also, that album took, I think it took two years to make, 
we started recording mm-hmm. in 04 and um i got waylaid and distracted and i went on a big tour and and that waylaid just, wisely <laughs> <laughs> wisely waylaid sorry should have named the should have named the album that <laughs> no don't, don't be sorry that was a good one um the uh yeah so uh, you know an album that takes a long time to write and then a long time to make is often one that's going to be bound to be really good because i always i always think of collaboration you know i'm i always wanted to be in a band because i realized that when you have four people like in the beatles you have this beautiful chemistry that exists of of influences and and every song benefits from from you know george's contribution and ringo's contribution and so forth and um but all my life i was just shoved into no god you're the writer you're the singer you're the you're good on stage you just call it willie wisely and i'm like i don't want to call it willie wisely i want to call it mm-hmm. you know fuffkin's journey you know and but it, it just I just, the universe never let me be in a band. All I ever wanted to do was be in a band with a bunch of guys and just go dominate the Northern hemisphere, you know, and it just <laughs> never could happen. I always had to be a, a solo artist and all the, you know, seriosity that that engenders. So my collaborator more often than not winds up being me and if I'm truly going to be a collaborator, a guy with different ideas than the other guy, time has to pass. So essentially, the clock, the calendar is my collaborator. So I come up with an idea and you just put it far away and you have to come back because a different set of eyes and ears have to be laid upon that. Consequently, I work uh, a bit slowly and I work a bit obsessively and replay and replay and replay things and um, and rewrite. And the writing process becomes a continuum of you know errors that occurred uh beautiful errors that informed uh some of the sophistication in the song you know and and chances are that if you hear a unlikely but perfectly placed chord change in my songs that started as an error so um yeah it's all about collision collision and time passing well i was talking with uh brad jones and he said uh, mm. he was making comments about when you recognize that a mistake works, that's the magic. <laughs> it's when the mistake happens and you don't recognize it, that's one thing. But when you hear it and you go, wait, 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 let's see what that is. And you follow it. That's when it can become magical. Absolutely. And I just, I, you know, uh, like, yeah, when, when, you act, when you discover that ending this song on the, the, uh, the, the, four chord over the five somehow makes sense. Like, why would you end the song uh, on a, on a minor ninth, you know, when the chorus was in a major key, you know, and, but these things, they just make sense. And you really have to be open to those things occurring um, and, and, and not have expectations of your music to sound a certain way or, or be delivered in whole in one sitting. So just be patient and give yourself time and let it bake. Like let the oven door stay closed for a minute, you know, so that the thing will actually rise. So 1996, you had this album, She, which also has a lot of great tunes on it, kind of like Parador, uh, a lot of things to choose from, Go and Ready to Wear and Love is Wrong and Vagabond, Blues All the Rage, Sleeping with Girls. All of these are the same album, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, there's more. Well, I remember where each of them was written and, uh, you know, I had, uh, go was written in New York city. Uh, I had terrible food poisoning. I was crashing for free for a week. 
um, with my girlfriend's best friend. And because of this food poisoning, I had the worst gas ever. I was exploding from the, from the, out, from the inside. And that poor girl in her one room apartment in New York city had this blowfish that we were sharing the bed. I mean, it was just totally ridiculous. Um, but I remember she went to work in the, the next morning and um, I wrote go, not because I had to go, <laughs> but um, you know, just poisoning it passed. And I was just like, I need to write something poppy and fun. And that chorus just came out of me and I wrote the lyrics pretty much as you knew them. You know, it was just a, you know, it, it's sort of a, you know, well, that, thanks for your sage opinions. Now tell me something I don't know. So it was sort of a, you know, a, I don't know what you call that sort of song, but I, I went and I didn't like that it was sort of mean spirited. So I went and rewrote all the lyrics after I had played the song live with my bands a couple times that then all of my super fans were like, are you crazy? Don't change those lyrics. It's perfect. So I would have totally overwritten that song and taken it too far. Um, so I use the original lyrics in the recording. And to this day, I play it in almost every show I, I play. People love that song. Sweet. Well, and Ready to Wear, you've got a melody and a vocal performance that I was basically laughing right out loud, hearing how much fun you're having and landing on unexpected notes and putting on sort of character voices, if you don't mind me saying so. Uh-huh. And um, and you had foreshadowing background vocals, so I, I call it foreshadowing, which means that the backing vocal says the line before the lead vocal says it. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed all those things in Ready to Wear. Thank you very much. Yeah, ready to wear was an exercise in just like uh, you know. I saw her standing there is just the most rollicking, awesome mm-hmm. song in the world, and I just wanted to do something like that. I had I had been in the Conquerors for a while. My my sort of you know uh, the, the British invasion band I was in with the four gentlemen and with, mm-hmm. uh, with the four of us, and I just wanted to write something in the ilk of the Hollies or or the Beatles. Uh, you know, just something from the Cavern Club, and that so it it borrows a lot from that era. Uh, it doesn't have the uh, the tonal quality of the Cavern Club, so that's kind of fun. And and the lyrics are a bit raunchy, yes. And uh, <laughs> well, uh, sleeping with girls is kind of um, uh, let's see, it's a guilty pleasure, right? I mean, it's <laughs> a very fun song, and it's not there's nothing mean in it at all. Uh, we're assuming that these are willing partners and everyone's having a good time. Hop between the sheets A man never felt so nice Toenails sharp as blades Feet as cold as ice Reminds me a little bit of the theme from Dr. Pizer by Ben Foltz Five. It's a it's a faster, but it's got that um, jazzy type of thing about it. And then uh, your vocal comes off like when Neil Finn is sort of at his when he's kind of howling and screaming. You get a little of that uh, attitude in some Mike Viola too. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because I was uh, I left a Facebook comment about Neil Finn just today. So you're That's great. You're, you're hitting on a total sweet spot of mine. And and uh, but yeah, sleeping with girls was I, I've always been an, a male apologist. And I ever since I was very young, it was just quite clear to me that that women really got the raw end of the deal in terms of uh, fairness in society. And uh, I just, you know, I feel that they're so much more powerful than than they are given power, you know. And mm-hmm. and to me, that was always an injustice. And so, whether it's a song like "Make Love" on on the She album, or or "Sleeping with Girls," it's you know, make you know, the song "Make Love" is actually called up. It should be titled "I, I Apologize." That's the dominant lyric. Mm-hmm. And I've I've always felt that way. And you know, "Kiss Her and Make It Right" while it from my true album from. 2012 at, at while at once sounding like a sort of a you know a suggestion to molest someone it's it's really just about you know make it right you know do right by mm-hmm. her so i've always been the male apologist and was sleeping with girls it was just like i had had my share of escapades a lot of them on the road touring and and i was just like oof i am I am part of the problem and you know what this lifestyle has backfired on me it's created mm-hmm. a lot of bad situations and it culminated that in particular song culminated out of a um I would go on tour and and then I, I would just you know wind up I'm sorry to be blunt I just hooking up with girls and and in, in different cities and and I, I, but I'd want to continue relationships with them because I'm basically an, uh, you know, a husband at heart. You know, I, I want to be true and blue and, and, you know, but I'm young and having fun. And it, so those things are colliding inside of me. But so I feel like, well, when I get home from tour, I've got to write everybody a letter, you know, every, everyone that, that, you know, I spent time with and, and I would write these letters and, um, and then put them all in envelopes and mail them off ensemble. And, uh, one time I put, you know, Rebecca's letter into Amanda's envelope and put Amanda's letter into Rebecca's envelope. And, you know, the call that I got from San Francisco was pretty much the low point of my entire life of humiliation. It's just like, I'm so glad that you and Amanda had fun in Madison and that that was really great to read about. And, you know, F you. And I never spoke to her again and I never, my, my, I never quite recovered from that as what a dirty scoundrel I was. And that, that left a big impact on me and sleeping with girls came out of that, uh, true experience. It's interesting because there's no, the, the person in the song is the person before, before the realization hits, right? The person's he's in the, he's in the process of it still. <laughs> yes. And that was just because I was realizing like, I think I'm writing a funny song. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, right. you know, I had something about toenails and, you know, they're kicking, elbowing each other. And I was like, let's keep this light. Um, mm-hmm. I, this does not have to have a, a moral. I mean, uh, there is a moral, I think in the, the last refrain has, uh, has some sort of self, there's a self deprecation that runs through the song that, mm-hmm. that's present. So, and, and that to me was what lets the song escape you know, (laughs) protests outside the front of my gig. I saw you walking with him around the arcade There's something you ought to know before naming a day Now Parisian women are fine He knows this well Champagne for your anniversary. He was talking to a woman in 
bit about your re-releases because you do a lot of them and it's kind of a cool thing. Everything gets recycled, but songs get new life. Tell us about that. Uh, great. Thanks again for your detailed observation. Um, it's, uh, it means the world to me. Um, yeah, because my process is an intimate one and I don't throw anything away because I'm in love with it all. And, and um, you know, if I'm going to spend time on an idea, I generally am not willing to see it wind up in the trash. I, and I admire artists who actually can go, mm, not right. Uh, but me, I'm like, everything must reach the end. Everybody passes the, uh, the, the checkered flag. And that sort of stick-to-itiveness creates situations where I have three different versions of this song in my head, or, you know, or that, that I actually have two different bridges that, that could work with this song or, Oh God, what if I, what if I do a, you know, a credenza after the you know second chorus and, and, you know, sing an alternate melody. And, and there, I always have three songs worth of ideas for one composition. And so it's always fun to re-record or release the stripped down version or show the demo with, with the other lyrics. Um, and I mean, you know, it's it's maybe it's not all the greatest, but I just love revealing the process. I'm certainly in love with the process, so I'm hoping my fans are. I love it too, and I love that sometimes they're like if you did an acoustic show and all you had was an acoustic guitar, you'd do that version of that song. So I've noticed that you you really do it all of the different ways, kind of like Elvis Costello. He re-records songs in the moment because he wants to get, is that the version I want to release or is this the version I want to release? The band will do it all different. But then also he'll go on tour and play it differently just to keep from being bored. And then he'll re-record the song later uh, because he gets a new way of looking at it. And then that version becomes a new version. You know, You really do all those different things. I enjoy the comparison to Elvis Costello, certainly. I mean, that's just pure flattery because that guy's just, you know, in his fifth decade of being on fire. And I really enjoy um, showing people the detail uh, in, in the songs with the acoustic guitar only. And then that was part of your question was, you know, what, what's the ya-ya there? Um, well, one is just the, you know, hey, it costs less to tour by myself than with a band. Um, and so I, I, I'll arrange these for, for, for a single instrument, but quite honestly, it's like, I toil over these things for, as I've said, weeks and, um, a lot of ideas and flourishes are buried under now pedal steels and drums and, and bass and, and stuff like that. And pretty soon it's easy to make recordings that don't have space in them, uh, and uh, I was just listening to some Billie Eilish um, on the on the way uh, to to where I'm at right now, and I hadn't really given her the time of day yet. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm just skeptical of anything that's getting a lot of press, particularly if they're 17 years old. But I got to say, the production on that stuff and the way the songs are written, there's so much space. There's so much space for the listener to just crawl in there and live under the bridge of Billie Eilish. And I'm just going to be homeless with Billie right now, you know, like, and, and I'm going to run away from home and live under the bridge. <laughs> There's tons of room under there. I don't know. The metaphor is not completely apt, but um, I, it's easy to fill up a recording with, with just a lot of racket and a lot of parts. And I feel like stripping things down shows people the raw composition and that there is really content here. It's not just form. Dog stay the way she tossed her coat across the Davenport. Tap me on the head to quiet my concern. It's been a hound's life. said no go away i long just to hold her with words i have told her all the things lovers should say all right so let's just talk about a process i'm gonna try nonsense questions see how it works <laughs> if you were batman but as a songwriter not a crime fighter 
Which of these three scenarios, A, B, or C, would describe you best? A, do you wait by the pool at Wisely Manor for Alfred to bring you the songwriting bat phone saying, Master Wisely, you have a song on the line? Or B, do you make time regularly in your virtual bat cave or bat studio to suss out songs? Or C, are you actually observing the good citizens of Gotham City working songwriting angles whenever and wherever you can find them? <laughs> I think it's a mixture between A and C. Um, cause I, I keep that document where all the funny sayings that I should be tweeting, but instead just, I p- plow into this document, you know, just out of context remarks that just sound like great song ideas. I keep that document. So that's the observation of Gotham element. But then, um, I'm, I definitely do not make, I do not respect the songwriting like I should. I do not set aside time for it. I set aside way more time for editing videos of me trying on vintage clothes at stores and all sorts of vanities that I deeply enjoy, but um, are really perhaps a waste of time. (laughs) But, but Hey, I've heard, I've heard sociology theories that say that no one, Uh, Any given population is very inefficient because of humans, because what a person is best at is likely to bore them (laughs) because they're really good at it. So they will choose what they're second best at. You know, so if you could have some sort of authority that told everyone to you are best at this and you will only do that and you will advance society in that respect, (laughs) you know, and then everyone will be Paul McCartney. You know, everyone trying to write songs will be Paul McCartney. You know, they, uh, anyway, I, I, I should pour myself into songwriting is my point, And I don't. And I sometimes just wait for, you know, my schedule to clear, which it never does. And, you know, it, and so that's why co-writing is helpful because it's a date and you can't cancel on people. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's a way to stay prolific. Um, which is a shame because you look at my She album from 1996, which I think is, is sort of uh, it, it has a a cohesiveness and a, a shine to it that's just really really raw and and you know I'm coming out you know and mm-hmm. and I wrote every one of those songs alone and I mm-hmm. I pine for those days but life is too complicated for that anymore. thing coming our way from the Willie Wisely Music House is going to be uh, an album called Face the Sun. It comes out on August 2nd. Reteaming with your friend John Fields. Yes, my dear friend John Fields. We, he produced my 1996 and 1997 albums. And so we're reuniting some 22 years later for this record. Fantastic. Hey, Willie, it was great talking with you. And um, thanks for sharing so much about your songwriting and uh, music business savvy and all that stuff. Enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you, Dave. And I must say, you've so deeply researched, you know, my 
catalog and it means the world that you paid attention and found the hidden gems, I think, you know, and, and that your ear went and found some of my favorite tunes that nobody ever remarks about. So, you know, I, uh, we're friends forever, dude. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, my pleasure. I enjoyed the music. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 11 with Willie Wisely. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the podcast, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.